0: Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally, starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ron. This week, I want to talk with you about something that I think is incredibly important, how medical gender bias is killing women and how to save your own life. Medicine has a lot of terms I dislike. Historically, these have included phrases like incompetent cervix and failure to progress in labor because they put the blame on the woman's body. She's incompetent. She's failed. But the word that bothers me the most these days is part of the daily medical lexicon. It appears at the top of every single medical chart of every single patient in the country. It's the first thing your doctor sees after seeing your name. It's chief complaint. It's the word complaint that bothers me because it's killing women. From the time where little girls were taught not to complain, in the more modern day grown up spiritual world, we're kind of told that too, in the form of have gratitude every time something's bothering us. We've learned somewhere along the line. That voicing our real needs, expressing our dissatisfactions, our discomfort, our pain, is whining. It's complaining. So we don't complain. For example, when we're in our late 40s or early 50s and suddenly tired for a few days, are nauseated, don't feel right, maybe feel more anxious than usual and have a bit of heaviness in our chests. We might not complain our way right through a heart attack. Keeping silent is killing women literally. Words like complaint reflect the bias of a system that belittles women. We are, for example, likely to convince ourselves that serious symptoms are nothing in order not to complain about it. Nobody wants to be a complainer. Nobody likes complainers. We're not complaining our way right through heart attacks, sometimes into fatal ones. The problem is though, that when we do speak up, when we do say something's wrong, when we do say we are in actual tremendous pain, even we are as a medical cultural rule, more likely to be ignored, condescended to, dismissed and disregarded than men. Most women who come to see me as patients have had some experience of feeling invisible or being treated that way, actually in a medical appointment or in the hospital. Millions of women leave medical offices every day without diagnoses or being underdiagnosed for serious medical conditions because of this phenomenon. We'd have to have a saying here: "Overdosed, underdiagnosed." The statistics bear this out. It's been really striking to me as I am working on this book on adrenal thyroid issues that the preponderance of conditions for which women are ignored and dismissed, with the exception of one that I'm about to talk about, but which does actually have more of a fatal impact on women shockingly, are autoimmune conditions. So let's talk about autoimmune disease. This collection of conditions in which your own immune system attack your own tissue include about a hundred different conditions, most notably Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Graves' disease, which is autoimmune hyperthyroid, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, just to name a few, make up the top 10 killers of women annually. So autoimmune disease is in the list of the top 10 that can lead to fatality in women. Yet it can take years for a woman to get a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease even when going to multiple different doctors with her multiple different concerns. Now, notice here, I don't use the word complaint. I'm using the word concerns. I find the word complaint offensive. Why? Because my patients don't have complaints. They have concerns. Why else? Because most doctors see that word day in and day out. And when they hear symptoms like fatigue, weakness, pain, stress, they assume that it's depression. They assume that it's anxiety. And most often, they write a prescription for an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. It doesn't help that the average physician has 13 minutes with a patient to not only hear her concerns, but to check off all the boxes he or she is supposed to in order to get insurance to reimburse for the visit. So when you're a doctor and you start seeing the word complaint day in and day out and using that word day in and day out, When you think of a patient as complaining, for example, as in a sentence that a doctor might say, like a 53-year-old woman came into the emergency department complaining of fatigue and nausea for two days. Well, like I said, nobody likes a complainer. Now, if we switch that word to concern, a 53-year-old woman came into the emergency department concerned about her fatigue and nausea for two days. Doesn't that switch the conversation? It switches it from annoyance to compassion and curiosity. Let's look at some other conditions for which women are dismissed and ignored and which the preponderance of sufferers are women. About 80 or so percent of the people suffering from autoimmune diseases in the U.S. are women. And the case is the same with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, which less than 10 years ago weren't even considered real conditions by the medical establishment. Not too long before that, I'll remind you, neither was IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. They were all considered fringe diagnoses doled out by alternative practitioners. Women who visited their physicians and said, I think I have chronic fatigue syndrome or presented a list of symptoms that sounded like it often received some eye rolls and even verbally dismissive comments, much like women who report getting the same kind of response from their doctors now when they say they think they have a thyroid or adrenal problem. And guess what these women were called? Difficult patients or those kind of patients, suggesting that they really had a psychological issue or were just complainers. Ditto for women with symptoms of depression and anxiety. They're really dismissed. It's just sort of all in their heads. Today, we do know that IBS and fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome are very real medical conditions with very real physiologic underpinnings that cause them. And yet, amazingly, most doctors don't know that fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome are real medical conditions. They're still figuring out how to treat those women what to do for those women. There are now articles in medical journals trying to explain to doctors that these are real conditions and that they have to treat patients with respect, not dismissively. And yet these medical conditions are really only taught about in 30% of medical schools, though they're affecting millions and millions of women. The stakes start to get higher even though. More women than men have died each year from heart attack or heart disease related causes since 1984. I'm going to repeat that. More women die each year from heart disease and heart attacks than men. Yet when women under 55 do have heart attacks and those women are about twice as likely to die as men more than 15,000 women every year, they're also more likely to get dismissed. Now, first of all, this is partly because the model of heart attacks is based on men's presentation, which usually does include chest pain. So women are very likely not to recognize that they're having symptoms of heart attack, But also, so are their doctors because they assume based on the male model, if it's not chest pain, something else is going on. What's that something else usually dismissed as? Stress or anxiety. But women don't typically present with heart attacks with chest pain. Women are more likely or just as likely to have new onset or unusual fatigue, jaw, shoulder, upper back, or abdominal discomfort, shortness of breath right arm pain, not the left arm pain we think of with heart attack and with the chest pain, nausea and vomiting, sweating, lightheadedness or dizziness, In fact, that's what my patient Carol told me was going on for her for three days before she came into the emergency department when I saw her when I was a medical resident. Reviewing her symptoms and her case with my attending doctor at that time, given that she had no chest pain, he told me I could send her home. I asked if we could keep her for a few hours for observation and run some tests, and he agreed. She was, it turned out, in the early stages of a heart attack. Unfortunately, it doesn't always go so well for women with similar symptoms coming into hospitals. A study done in 2012 tracking over a million patients with heart attacks from 1994 to 2006 found that women just didn't receive the kind of attention that men did when they were having a heart attack, explaining why 15% of women likely die in the hospital from heart attacks compared to 10% of men. The scary thing is, though, that the overwhelming majority of women who do come into the hospital thinking they're having a heart attack do actually have chest pain, but they're dismissed also, told it's anxiety or stress. Once a woman says stress, guess what, ladies? It's considered all in our heads. Now, what are you going to do to save your own life here? Because as you see, we've got a problem and the problem probably isn't going to be changing anytime soon. So, let me tell you what happened to me. I personally had an experience in which I was dismissed. Over a period of a few years, I noticed that my exercise tolerance had been going down. It started around when I was 36. And even though I was fit and healthy, whenever I rode my bicycle or took a run and tried to go uphill, my heart started racing wildly. I got really overheated, nauseated, my blood was pounding in my ears and I'd feel like I was going to faint. In fact, a lot of times I had to just sit down and let it pass. Then twice in my medical training, around when I was 39 or 40, over a few weeks back to back, I had to run to codes. You know, codes are like in Grey's Anatomy when everyone goes running to help resuscitate a dying patient. One of these times I had to run up six flights of stairs. The other, I had to run the equivalent of a city block. Both times before I got to the code, I nearly fainted and had to sit down until finally the third time I did faint and a rapid response was called on me in the hospital. A bag of IV fluid later and a very dashing cardiologist told me it was just stress. I was a busy mom, overworked in my medical training and dehydrated. No, I said, I don't think so. Something's up. He assured me it was not. So, I sought out another opinion, an exercise stress test later in the cardiologist's office after I nearly passed out on the treadmill, the cardiologist came into the room laughing. "'What's so funny?' I asked him. He told me, "'I thought you were just another hypochondriac medical student, but you actually have an electrical conduction issue going on in your heart. You can get a pacemaker or you can just learn to accommodate to it.' I'll accommodate, thank you very much, I informed him, and no, I am not a hypochondriac. Of note, this term has historically been applied to women, as has the word hysterical, which incidentally has its origins in the Greek word for uterus. Hysteria was a condition thought to affect only women, causing us to be neurotic and insane. Need I say more? So how can you save your own life? Here's what I recommend. First, Trust yourself. Like I did, if you think something is up, speak up. You have to. Probably nobody's going to do it for you, and you've got to get comfortable making yourself heard. Whether you're in your primary care provider's office or the emergency department, tell them something is up. You don't usually have these symptoms, and you need proper medical attention. Don't get sent home without a diagnosis. In fact, That actually happened to a woman I was working with once. This was when I was a home birth midwife. So before I was a medical doctor and a very demure Japanese woman became my client. And she had felt something in her breast and asked me to feel it at the first appointment that I had with her. And sure enough, she had a breast lump. So I sent her in for an appointment with an obstetrician and called her a few days later to see how the appointment went and what the obstetrician thought. And she said, well, the obstetrician was so busy that I never did tell her what I came in there for. She just did a little prenatal. She checked my belly and she sent me home. And I said, you have to get this checked out. But she was so uncomfortable interfering with the doctor's busy schedule that she let herself leave without being heard and examined properly. So I asked her permission if I could call the doctor myself and explain the situation. There was also a language barrier. This woman spoke English fluently, but she was a little bit uncomfortable with her skills. And so I called the OB and I told the OB the situation and the woman went back the next week for a medical appointment and guess what? She had a stage four breast cancer that would have been missed. Now, fortunately, she was also my client and I was able to speak up for her, but what would have happened had there not been somebody there who could do that. So you've got to speak up for yourself. If you have a chronic health problem, you might have to do some of your own homework, so do it. Look on the internet or look in books for trusted sources, ideally people with a recognizable credential, but sometimes even what I call citizen scientists, other women who have had to figure it out for themselves can be good resources too. Make a list using that resource of what tests you think you need, for example, or what condition you think you might have, and then schedule an appointment specifically to discuss your concerns with this primary provider. Don't try to squeeze it into a time when you're having a full physical or a pap smear or anything else. When you call the office to make an appointment, let them know you need a full appointment time. That's usually 40 minutes, 50 minutes, or an hour, depending on the practice, but not just a 15 minute or a 25 minute quick visit. Bring an advocate with you someone who isn't a pushover when it comes to authority and who's absolutely going to have your back and not do some weird team up if it's a doctor and, you know, there's a power play going on. I mean, what can I say? People do weird things around authority and even more so when there's male-female politics going on. So I've seen situations where a woman brings her boyfriend in and the doctor is male and the boyfriend and the doctor kind of side up with each other. It gets weird. So have somebody you can really trust and if you have somebody who you can trust of your own gender, that can be really even more effective a lot of times. Let your doctor know or your practitioner know that you're not trying to be a pain in the butt, but you've been doing some homework and you've got symptoms that are going on that you're concerned about and maybe they've even been dismissed before by that doctor or by someone else, and that you think that there are tests that are going to shed some light or a further examination that's going to shed some light on some way that's going to improve your health. Ultimately, that should be your doctor's goal. And we all want to see our patients thrive with health and happiness. And we love having positive relationships with our patients. So try that tactic. Before you actually go in for the appointment, think through what you're asking for and why, what you'd like help with, and write down your key points in a notebook or on some index cards and actually use this as a script when you go in for your medical appointment. It'll help you stay focused and calm, and it'll also help you feel more prepared and organized. And it's going to help you look that way too. Like you've given this a lot of thought and research. At your appointment, it doesn't help to let your doctor know that you do respect her training and your credential, and so you want her honest opinion and you want to rely on her knowledge or his, but that you're really trying to become the CEO of your own health and a more active partner in your healthcare, that you really, really welcome that partnership and advice and that you'd love to work with a practitioner that sees you this way, but also enjoys working collaboratively. If you feel like your practitioner is not listening or is condescending, if you're unable to speak up because there's a real power issue going on there and you feel like you can't take charge, then sometimes you might have to do the hard work of breaking up with your doctor. You deserve to be respected. If your doctor or any practitioner is insensitive, condescending, won't listen, makes you feel small, invisible, unheard, insecure, full of self-doubt, or that you have to fight to get what you need, that's not good medicine. It's when mistakes get made. There are statistics showing that when doctors are hurried, they're not paying attention. When they're not making the effort to make good relationship, big, important diagnoses get missed. So it's probably going to serve you to find another practitioner. Finally, I just want to remind you, we have all been taught from the time that we were the youngest girls to be polite, mind our manners, be good, don't challenge authority, be respectful, be nice. I am going to urge you to own your inner bad girl. Look, I'm not saying you have to be rude, but I am saying you have to be bold clear, strong, and assertive. If it's hard for you, practice, but learn to do it. It might just save your life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to AvivaRom.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.